Let's open up our Bibles now to God's Word in Luke chapter 2. Gospel according to Luke chapter 2 and we'll read verses 1 through 21. passage that's very familiar to us concerning the birth of Christ, perhaps even a passage and a section of this passage that some of you children know from memory too. So let's read Luke 2 verses 1 through 21. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. It all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, Good will toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, They made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. When eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Read God's word to that point. May God bless 
to us the reading of his holy and inspired word. Our text is verses 1 through 7. You'll recall that we have considered together from 1 Timothy why Christ came to earth, and then from Galatians 4 when Christ came to earth, and now how, as we look at that in Luke 2 verses 1 through 7. You'll notice, beloved, that Luke 2 describes the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in a very matter-of-fact way. And that is surprising to us, surprising to us if we are at all familiar with the content of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is filled, you could say, with wonders that God performed. Luke chapter 1 records for us the angelic appearances that took place. Angels appearing and angels making significant announcements, announcements concerning, first of all, the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Christ, and then the announcement concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then Luke chapter 1 records for us, too, the outstanding miracles that God performed. The wonder, the miracle of the conception of a child to Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were old now. And then the miracle and the wonder of the conception of a child in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost that came upon her and without a human husband. And then we have also recorded in Luke 1 heavenly songs that were sung, songs that mentioned the Son of God, songs that mentioned the Son of the Highest, songs that mentioned God's Son, the Savior of the people of God. So that when you come to the end of Luke 1, you are expecting some great announcement concerning the birth of the Christ. That is, that everything points to in Luke chapter 1. But we read Luke chapter 2, as we did, and we get, we get the impression that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is not that significant. The greatest wonder took place. God came into our flesh. The Son of God was born. The Son of the Highest was born. And yet we have a very matter of fact and a very simple account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Why is that? God had it recorded that way, beloved, for good reason. And God directed by his spirit, directed Luke 
to write for us an account of the birth of Christ that, you could say, gives us an earthly perspective concerning his birth. Chapter 1 is filled with the heavenly perspective. Now in Luke 2, the earthly account. An earthly account that serves to highlight and to emphasize the lowliness of the birth of God's Son into this world. And that's what we focus upon now as we consider how Christ came to earth. How did he come to earth? He came through a lowly birth. Three things concerning that. They were directed to Bethlehem, and then his lowly birth took place there, and then we'll notice to the saving significance of that. So the account of Jesus' birth does not begin with Joseph or Mary. The account of Jesus' birth does not begin with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, nor does it begin with God doing something, at least not on the surface of the account, but it begins with Caesar Augustus. It begins with a world ruler. It begins with the emperor of Rome. He makes a decree. He makes a decree that applies to everyone in his empire, including also the Jews who lived in Palestine. He is interested in gaining some money to run his empire. And so he devised a way to collect this money from all of the citizens of his empire and requires, therefore, that everyone returns to his or her hometown and, at this point in time, registers for the taxation. It's like a, a census that he had. And this meant that Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem, a journey of over 80 miles for them, a journey that would take two, three or four days, I mean, that would take three or four days for them. Caesar imposes hardship on them, the hardship of the trouble, and then later the hardship of the taxes that he would collect from them. And they must trouble Joseph and Mary at a time when Mary was close to giving birth. They would have preferred to wait. If they had the option, they would have said, well, well, we'll do this, but let's wait until the baby is born. Then we will travel. But they could not wait. They may not wait. They must go immediately. Caesar made it necessary. They must obey their earthly ruler. They must bow themselves before the decree of the emperor of Rome. 
Caesar's decree therefore brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, to the city of their fathers. As our text says in verse 4, very specifically, to the city of David. The city of David, the city where David was born, the city where David came from. There they must be, and brought there by the decree of Rome. God was in control of all these events. God had promised that his son would be born to the house of David, and that promise of God included this to David and to his people in the Old Testament. He will be born in Bethlehem. That was promised throughout the Old Testament, and then very specifically and explicitly God repeated that promise in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah 5, verse 2. But though Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. What that means then is that God had made a decree. God had decreed that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And now God is simply using the decree of Caesar, the decree of the Roman emperor, to fulfill the decree of God. Now, God could have told Joseph and Mary very directly and immediately to go to the city of David. That would not have been strange. In fact, a little later, God did speak to them directly and instruct them when Herod was determined to kill the baby Jesus to go to Egypt for a while. And it also would not have been strange because at this time, there were angelic announcements being made through the appearances of angels, messengers from God, so that it would not have been a strange thing for God to say to Joseph and Mary, the child is about to be born, you must get to Bethlehem, because that is what I have promised, and that promise must be fulfilled. But instead, God used Caesar Instead, God used and controlled the Roman emperor, the mighty world ruler of that day. Because this ungodly man, and all ungodly men, God reminds us of that here, all ungodly men are simply instruments in the hands of God for God's purpose in all of history to save his church. Caesar was thinking only about himself. He was thinking only about his empire, thinking only about the money he desired to have to rule and to run his empire, which was to say, thinking only about money for himself. 
when he knew, made his decree, he knew nothing about Joseph and Mary. He knew nothing about the promise of God that his son would be born into this world in the city of Bethlehem. He knew nothing about the city of David. And if someone were have to gone to Caesar and said to him, a savior is going to be born, and he is going to be born and must be born in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem, then Herod, then Caesar would have said, I couldn't care less about what you're speaking. I'm not interested in that. Proverbs 21, verse 1, explains it for us. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God always has done that with kings. God always will continue to do that with kings and rulers of the world to serve God's purpose and to serve God's church. <coughs> Everything and everyone in the world must serve God's purpose to save his church. And so at this point in history, when the Savior must be born, when God's Son must come into our flesh, and when God's Son must be born in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem, the city of the King who foreshadowed him, God overrules. God takes a hold of Caesar, and God directed the wicked heart of this wicked king with heavenly precision so that the decree of Caesar was in reality the decree of God. So that Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem in time for Jesus to be born in the city of David. That's what we read in verse 6. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. The days were accomplished. Literally, the days were filled up. Not merely, therefore, a reference to Mary being ready to give birth, although it certainly is that, but not merely that. This was also a reference to God's timing. The same idea as we considered last night in Galatians 4. The cup of time was filled up. The time was accomplished. The time was full. The time on the on God's clock was full. This was the exact time that God had decreed. And now God brings it to pass in the exact location that God has decreed, the perfect time for the birth of Jesus Christ. Not in a noble town, 
not in a prominent city, not in the city of Jerusalem, as some might expect, but in an insignificant town. In the words of Micah 5, verse 2, again, a town that was little among the thousands of Judah, a lowly city for the lowly birth of the Son of God. That brought about, and that led to, his lowly birth. She brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. A lowly birth in a lowly town. Lowly because he was not born in a palace or even in a house. There was no room in the end. Nor was there any room in any other somewhat comfortable location in the city of Bethlehem. He was born in a cattle stall. The Son of God was born there. Lowly because the Son of God was not born in a clean and a sterile environment, not in a hospital where there were doctors and nurses to take care of his birth, but among animals, with the dirt and the stench and the filth and the germs of cows and sheep and donkey. Lowly, because he was not dressed in princely clothing, but simply wrapped in strips of cloth. Lowly, because he was not placed in a well-prepared crib by parents who anticipated this birth and prepared ahead and were able to prepare ahead and to set aside a special place for him when he was born. But he, had, he, but he was placed in a manger, a feeding trough. That's where the Son of God first lay his head as him who came into this world and said later on, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not a place to lay his head, a place to call home. A very poor and a very lowly entrance into this world, and a very poor and lowly beginning of his earthly life. There was nothing noble or glamorous or desirable about the birth of Christ. He was born in poverty and born 
in humility. What should get our attention, beloved, is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was willing to be born there. Willing to be born there. Luke 2, in the account that is given us, there is written in such a way as to make it clear as something that we cannot miss concerning Christ's birth. That's what stands out. That's what ought to be noticed. That's what ought to strike us, especially as Luke 2 follows Luke 1. And Luke 1 speaks of the heavenly perspective, the wonders, the announcements, the names given to him. And now, this is how he is born. The Son of God, the Son of the Highest, the Son who is the Savior of mankind. comes into this world as though he is nothing. Nothing. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, did not make use of the world's riches. He did not make use of the finest and the best things in this world. He could have certainly could have. He could have had anything at all when it comes to a place for his birth. He could have had, it, had everything that the world had to offer. He could have had the cleanest and the most modern facilities along with the best doctors and nurses that ever existed in the history of the world. He could have had that. Son of God was willing to humble himself to a very, very low level. He chose to have very little. He chose to have the least of things. He chose to have the bare necessities. A roof over his head, some strips of cloth to wrap himself in, and some hay as a pillow. If you visited him in Bethlehem, you would not have noticed that the baby that was born there was the Son of God. Isaiah 53, 2 sums it up well. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's a description of Christ already at his birth. He was born into this world like each of us is born into this world. He was born into this world as a tiny, helpless, dependent child. The Son of God was born into this world that way. But with a much more lowly birth than any one of us has ever had. And with a much more lowly birth than any mother here would ever give to her child. 
the Son of God willingly put away for a while from himself his majesty, put away from himself for a while his glory, and put away from himself for a while his mighty power. He emptied himself of it all because he said when he came from heaven, this is not about me. This is not about me receiving and using the best and the finest that the world has to offer. He was thinking of others. He was thinking of you and me, and he put us ahead of himself. And he became lowly for us. Why was that necessary? Why did his birth have to be that way? Well, that was necessary, beloved, because he came into this world loaded with the sin and guilt of the people of God. With such a load of sin and guilt that you and I can never imagine. such a load of sin and guilt, such a load of punishment that he had to endure for the sins of the people of God, that he must have a lowly birth. He must have a lowly birth because the sins of his people were upon him already. Because of our sins, he could not have a glorious birth that would not have matched with the sin that he carried. Because of our sins, he couldn't even have a normal birth, what we might call a normal birth. His lowly birth was the first step for him on a road of suffering a road of suffering for all the sins of the people of God. His birth was the first step of a road along which he must travel throughout his earthly life, his 33 and a half years on this earth, in which every step for him was a step of suffering for our sin. His birth was the first step on a road that led to the cross. And he who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself even unto death, unto the death of the cross. He began at his birth to walk the road to the cross.
that poverty and that lowly birth of the Son of God certainly tells us something about ourselves, doesn't it? The greatness of his lowliness declares to us that our sins are not a minor thing. So great and so many are they that when the Son of God took those sins on himself, he was made low. So terrible are those sins that we have committed and that we continue to commit, that when the Son of God came into this world in order to make a payment for those sins, a payment to God, a payment to satisfy the justice of God against our sins, he had to be the lowliest of all. Don't ever overlook, beloved, or don't ever forget. We are the ones who deserved what he received. We deserve to be made low. We deserve to be made low eternally under the wrath of Almighty God. But Christ was made low and suffered that wrath of God so that we never have to face it or suffer it. The believer who seriously considers, therefore, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ will, by the grace of God, humbly confess that he stands before a great wonder, a wonder of grace, to think that the Son of God did that and had to do that because I have sinned against God. To think that my sin in Adam and my daily sins throughout my lifetime put the Son of God in such a lowly state when he entered into this world. And to think that he was willing to become nothing, a worm trampled in the dust as David prophesied of that in Psalm 22. A worm and no man. He was willing. Willing to become that for an undeserving, wretched sinner such as I am. Really, that's something that is unfathomable and unbelievable to us, we would say, that should never have happened. should never have happened. It doesn't seem right. We deserved it, not he. <coughs> and yet it did happen. That's the wonder of the grace of God in Christ. And he was willing to do it for us willing to stoop very low, willing to suffer, willing to suffer from day one of his life, 
and awful suffering, an infinite amount of the wrath of God against the sin of the great host of the elect, compressed into one lifetime, eternities compressed into time. You can never comprehend that. He gladly said, Father, I will do it. I will do it. He did that for us, and he did that for our salvation. The words of the Nicene Creed summarize it as we heard them earlier. Christ Jesus, who for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. And because of it, we are made rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Christ became poor. He became poor physically through his lowly birth and spiritually through being loaded with our sin and loaded with the punishment deserved for our sin, loaded and facing the fury of eternal hell for our sin but did that so that we might be eternally rich in him, so that we might enjoy and might inherit the eternal riches of his kingdom. When then we think about the birth of Christ, we look beyond Bethlehem to the cross. Because there he accomplished our salvation. And we look even beyond the cross. We look to the empty tomb, which declares that he has arisen from the dead, raised for our justification. And then we see the whole gospel of why Christ came into this earth. The gospel of our salvation through him. Believe it, beloved, and praise and thank God again and again and again for his unspeakable gift. Amen. God and our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy unspeakable gift of Christ. He took upon himself what we deserve, and who has gained for us eternal life and eternal blessing. We have, by thy grace, true joy in this day, the joy of our salvation, the joy of our deliverance from thy wrath, the joy of the fellowship of thee, our God, and the joy of life eternal in thy kingdom. In his name we pray.
Amen.